Hi, welcome to Things in Jars, a podcast about oddities, curiosities, and all the weird and wonderful stuff that dwells in museum stores. I'm Melissa. And I'm Poppy, and we're both curators, here to take you behind the scenes of the museum with us as we explore cool artefacts and answer your questions about what it's really like to work in a museum. episode we're going to be talking about some of the sadder and more moving stories from museum collections. It's going to be a very different tone from last week's haunted episode. We're going to be talking about death, about loss and about heartbreak and I think it's fair to say that both Melissa and I were a bit surprised by how hard we found it to put this episode together. Just talking about some of these things as you'll hear was pretty difficult. So we very much look forward to bringing you on this emotional roller coaster with us. The items that we've chosen to share all have some really amazing stories to tell. Um, So much so that we've got too much content for 30 minutes, so we're going to split this sad episode into two parts. This will be part one, part two will be uploaded next week, and there'll be two item spotlights as normal. This episode's spotlight has been chosen by Melissa, and it is... I'll be talking about the Licking Stones of Carlisle Castle. Ooh, I'm intrigued. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out more. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we'd just like to clarify that opinions expressed in this show are our own and Things in Jars is not affiliated with the museum in which we work, although we will be referring a lot to its wonderful collection. So we thought we'd start the episode by talking about some of the saddest things in the collection that we work with. And this is actually quite a difficult one because there are so, so many objects that have very sad tales attached to them that we'd love to talk about, but there probably just isn't time to go through every one. So we've we've picked a few. So would you like to start with one, Poppy? I think for me... Some of the saddest things that we have are a collection of items that were recovered from a shipwreck. These items are actually not ours, I should probably say that. They are on loan to us. But they were recovered from a shipwreck. Um, The ship was called the Earl of the Abergavenny, and it was an East India Company ship that was on its way to India when it struck rocks off the coast of Weymouth and went down in February 1805. So these things are always very moving to work with. There's a hairbrush with no bristles. They got washed away over time. There's a single officer's button from a uniform. There are pieces of flint, just tiny fragments, that are covered in barnacles and would have once been on weaponry on the ship. So these little pieces, they do paint a very clear picture of all of those lives lost, all of those men drowned. Um, And it's a very surreal emotional experience to hold these things in your hands and to know that they were there on that ship and they lived through it. It's It makes you feel very weird inside in a way that I can't quite describe. But it is very powerfully emotional. And I guess it's testament to the power of objects having memories and, and being able to connect us to events that otherwise seem so distant. But it does, it gives you this wonderful nearness to a tragedy of over 200 years ago. So... I always enjoy working with these. They are 
some of my favourite things that we've got, just because of their story. It's very special. Yeah, it is. And it's a, it is a stark reminder of that loss, isn't it? To think somehow that these things have survived the test of time and yet the people or many people on board that ship didn't. And there is also another layer of sadness attached to these items because the Wordsworth's brother, John Wordsworth, was one of the men on the Earl of the Abergavenny who lost his life. He was actually the captain of the ship and like any good captain he did what he could to get people to safety and sadly went down with the ship himself. William and Dorothy Wordsworth had been very close with their brother John. Out of the five Wordsworth siblings, they were definitely a little trio. John had helped them move into Dove Cottage and set up their home there. He had lived with them for a little while while they got settled in. And he is part of the reason why they felt so at home so quickly, because this house was full of happy memories of all of them together. So the news of John's death, when it came, absolutely devastated them. They were just broken. And it is something that changes their lives forever. It's funny that you should start with that story because the object that I really wanted to talk about and that immediately came to my mind when we were talking about this theme is a letter that William Wordsworth wrote in response to hearing the news of John's death. So this was in February 1805. John and William's brother Richard who lived in London, had heard of the sinking and had written a letter to William in Grasmere to say that John had sadly died. And the letter that William replies to Richard is just so heartbreaking to read. It's a relatively short letter and it begins, The lamentable news which your letter brought has now been known to us seven hours. And every time I read that line, I I kind of just feel a bit of an ache in my chest because... You can just imagine the news arriving by letter. So they would read the letter and you can kind of like count those hours, can't you, between that time. It just feels like such a long stretch of time and you imagine how awful it must have been to sit down and write that letter in reply. And the letter goes on to detail how everyone in the house is absolutely devastated and they're inconsolable and the letter ends with William saying God keep the rest of us together the set is now broken farewell and what he means by the set is the five siblings um, the five Wordsworth siblings of which John was one and now the set of the siblings is broken which is just awful to read it's so so sad it's so sad but the reason why I love talking about that letter and why I love sharing it with people is because it is so powerful and really takes you right to that moment of grief more than most of the letters I would say that we have in our collection it really really takes you there and you really feel it and I feel it each time and I've looked at that letter many many times and I've read it many times and even now even now I'm talking about it I can feel my eyes getting a bit hot and prickly because it is just so sad and as Poppy said they loved John so, so dearly and and they hoped that he would be able to come and live with them probably not long after this voyage that he was on, actually. I think that was the plan. So... Yeah, I think it was his last. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just those objects recovered from the wreck and this letter 
both really take you to that instance in life. And I'm sure that everyone who has lost someone can can identify with that. And I think that's what makes it so powerful too, is, is that it's such a raw human emotion to feel. You you can't you can't help but just feel feel it. Yeah, and I would say that you kind of see it from both sides. There's that awful shadow in the background of the letter of like before William received that everything was normal. They'd been going about their lives and then this bombshell just drops. Yeah. And you get that sense of shock from the letter, I think the way that yeah. he phrases it in the beginning. It's kind of like, oh my God, things can just happen. There's no warning. It's not fair. Things just go wrong. And then it's the set is broken. Life is never, ever the same again. He actually describes in the letter, doesn't he, about how how exactly they find out because the letter arrives at the house while William and his wife are out. So Dorothy, William's sister, hears the news first and William writes... I had no power of breaking the force of the shock to Dorothy or to Mary because he doesn't receive the letter first and they they kind of hear the news. So, yeah, you can. You're right. You can. It is a, a letter of shock, real shock. And the letters that follow, the, there's a sequence of letters, aren't there, like, that follow that are just devastating and, and deal with grief of both William and Dorothy when she eventually is able to write letters once more a little bit later on. Yeah and it's especially sad because this is the first significant loss of all of the major losses that the Wordsworths will experience over the coming years and actually this leads quite nicely into the second item that I wanted to talk about which is a letter written to William Wordsworth and Mary Wordsworth in 1812 to inform them of the death of their three-year-old daughter, Catherine. There are so many things that make this letter just heartbreaking to read. First off, I mean, it's the death of a child. And secondly, it's a death of a child whose parents were not at home at the time. So just it couldn't have worked out worse in a way. At this point in the Wordsworths' lives, um, William and Mary have been very happily married for 10 years. They're deeply in love. They have five wonderful babies and their family has grown so much that they've had to leave Little Dove Cottage behind them. Catherine Wordsworth was the youngest but one of the Wordsworth babies. And um, ever since she was born, there were concerns for her health. She was lame down one side. She was very prone to seizures. And scholars today think she might have had Down syndrome or possibly epilepsy. It's hard to say. But in June 1812, when William Wordsworth and Mary Wordsworth were both away in separate places and the children were being cared for by Dorothy Wordsworth and Mary's sister, Sarah Hutchinson, Catherine had a seizure and she did not recover. Dorothy then has to write to William to break the news. And the letter that she sends goes into minute detail about Catherine's final hours and how her condition worsened as time went on. It describes how she was convulsing, how she was vomiting, and how they called the doctor, but ultimately there was nothing that could be done. Um, And the worst part of all is that by the time William and Mary came back, Catherine's funeral had already taken place and all they had left of her was a grave. 
Was Mary in Wales and William was down in London or somewhere? I don't, I can't remember exactly where, where they're located, but yeah, William, William has been travelling, Mary's with her family, and it was intended that the letter be sent to William first so that he could, in a similar way to before, learn of the news first, and then he could go to Mary, wherever she was, and break the news to her. But what ended up happening was the letter missed William, so it didn't arrive to where wherever he was in time. And then it, it sort of kept following him on his journey, but kept missing him and kept missing him. And by the time that the letter did get to William, he was already with Mary. So again, it the letter you know, came came as a shock. I mean, it would come as a shock at any time, I suppose. But, you know, the the intention was that William would hear first so that he could be the one to tell Mary. But the letter is itself is... I always think it's it's quite... The way that it starts, it, it starts, I think, with the lines like, Sarah and I... Oh, Sarah and I are both well. Yeah, both in, in perfect health, I think, even, she says, or something like that. And but, then she's like, but poor Catherine. Yeah, but but poor Catherine died this morning. And then the letter goes into detail as Poppy described about the circumstances and what happened. And it's just the biggest blow to to imagine receiving. And then, as as awful as that is, six months later their other son, Thomas, died. Oh yeah, from measles. So, and because they were living in the rectory in Grasmere, it was opposite Grasmere Church, they could see into the churchyard where Thomas and Catherine were buried from their house. And I think that that grief and those memories were one of the reasons why they chose to leave that house and go and live elsewhere. So, it, I mean, it really is just so, so sad. And as much as it's awful that those things happen to them, for us as curators and as people who who are responsible for for promoting the legacy of the Wordsworths and helping people get to know them as people, these letters, like the one about John's death and, and Catherine's death, are incredibly powerful because, again, they take us to these real human moments that you just can't can't but help identifying with or, if not identifying with, then at least feeling sympathy or empathy for definitely and as well it's so strange when you see their whole life laid out before you isn't it so you you have for example their letters from when they're young young adults young people all the way through to the the days of their old age and even after their death you have letters and you see these events in their life that take place years apart and yet for us we just can see them all laid out in front of us and I always find that quite odd that we see their whole life as one big picture whereas for them you know they wouldn't they were they were living in that moment and this is this is the absolute closest that we can get I think to being able to be in that moment with them when you read these letters so this seems like a good time to ask if anything has ever made you cry from our collection is there anything that you've just kind of been very overcome by when you've been working with it? I don't think I've ever truly shed a tear, but as I have said, that letter or, or those two letters have really made, have moved me deeply. 
And for me, that doesn't always translate to tears. Sometimes it can just be a really strong feeling. But for this question, I kind of have an example from elsewhere. What about, is, is there anything that's made you shed a tear? I also can't think of anything from our collection that's actually made me weep. Probably because I live in fear of doing anything that could damage things. So weeping is an occupational hazard. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, no no liquids near paper documents, please. Actually, I do genuinely fear sometimes that other people are going to weep on things and I'll get in trouble but um, or have to stop them in this very tender moment. So no, I haven't cried, but as you say, I've definitely come across things that have moved me very deeply. But let's talk about things from other collections because I know there are we both have examples of things from other places where we've been taken by surprise and maybe wept a little bit yeah I have an example that stayed with me ever since I went there this has really stayed with me and this was an exhibition in Kensington Palace that I visited in 2016 and it was called Victoria Revealed and it was all about Queen Victoria and her life. So just to put it into context for any of you who aren't familiar with Kensington Palace, it is in London and it was the childhood home of Queen Victoria. And it was also a place where some significant moments in her life occurred. So for example, she heard that she was going to become queen whilst living there. She, I think she signed her first official royal document there as as queen when she was still a teenager and it's where she and prince albert who she fell deeply in love with and would go on to marry first met so it's it was a really good exhibition because it it is within the very rooms in which she lived so i really like that so i went to see this exhibition and throughout it are quotes from her diaries sort of stenciled on mirrors and on tabletops and in drawers so you're really immersed in her own words from the very first and you go through rooms so you go through her childhood room uh, where she you can see dolls from her childhood and drawings that she'd done and then you go through a room which talks about her coronation and then her meeting with Albert and their blossoming love and then their marriage and then people who know the history of Victoria and Albert probably can guess what's coming but in 1861 Albert sadly died and I think he was in his 40s so it was it was a death that wasn't expected and was and came came too soon and so you're going through the rooms and I remember feeling really you know really really getting into it um and I walked into the next room and it was this kind of darkened room And there was barely anything in the room apart from a case, a single case that kind of had a light shining on it. And in the case was a book and it was a copy of Walter Scott's novels and tales. It was a a collected or it was a volume from sort of a collected volume of stories. And the story that it was open at was Peveril of the Peak. And Victoria had marked the final page that they'd read I think it was either Victoria or the the children had had been reading to Prince Albert and she'd marked the last page they got to before he died I think three days before he died I know um and she she's written in the book 
Um, this book was read up to the mark in page 81 to my beloved husband during his fatal illness and within three days of its terrible termination, December 14th, 1861. And along with this book, there was an extract from Victoria's journal. And even just thinking about it now is making me... I can see the words in front of me and I'm going to try and read them out, but it just absolutely knocked me out seeing that book and, and this journal entry. So this is an extract from Victoria's journal, which was written in February 1872, over 10 years after Albert died. And this was the first time that she could actually bring herself to describe the events of her husband's final day. I bent over him and said to him, Es ist kleines Frauchen. It is your little wife. And he bowed his head. I asked him if he would give me ein Kuss, a kiss, and he did so. He seemed half dozing, quite quiet. I left the room for a moment and sat down on the floor in utter despair. Attempts at consolation from others only made me worse. Alice told me to come in, and I took his dear left hand, which was already cold, though the breathing was quite gentle, and I knelt down by him. Alice was on the other side, Bertie and Lenchin, kneeling at the foot of the bed. Two or three long but perfectly gentle breaths were drawn, the hands clasping mine, and, oh, it turns me sick to write it. All, all was over. And I just, I did cry at that. I really, really did cry. It just came over me. And then you go into the next room and you're greeted by this big glass case with her black morning dress in it. Mm, and it's yeah. a very beautiful dress, but you, it's just so such a shift from the, the colours of her life before. And on the case is the quote, my life as a happy one has ended, the world has gone for me. Oh. And then from then on, the exhibition deals with uh, her as or her legacy as, as, you know, this lady who always wore black, who was forever in mourning. And yeah, it just, even now, it really, it really gets me. Are you crying? No. <laughs> Definitely, like, I can, I can feel it, though. I can picture how it must have been and the way they crafted that to make it yeah. shift so suddenly into mourning. Wow. That is it, it was, it it was powerful. It was very simple, but yeah, just the lowering of the lights, the sparsity of the room and the spotlight on this one object was really, yeah, really, really moving. And I've certainly never forgotten it. No. The book, like, I can't tell you how the, the things like that just, oh. Also, about the book as well, it's open on a page that has a really poignant last few lines on it which it's oh, a terrible coincidence <laughs> it is and i think it, it must it's referring to the character of the book but the last paragraph reads he looks towards the table he had left the taper seemed to become hazy and dim as he gazed he heard the sound of voices and in a few minutes he was faster asleep than he had ever been in the whole course of his life oh man i know so it's just it's just yeah oh, but for all of that though i think if you were Albert in that situation, that's a really nice way to go. I hate when people say that, but to have yeah. your family around you and that that those last lines are very soothing. Yeah. It makes it seem like all will be okay. 
Yeah. But poor Victoria. I know. And I think it was the build-up of the exhibition beforehand because I didn't know a lot about Victoria and Albert and their relationship at this time. And it was around the time that the TV show Victoria was on. And that's kind of what made me want to go. I was interested in learning more about her. And I think that day as well, I was feeling a bit anxious and not my cheery, happy self anyway. So that seeing that really just, yeah. Yeah, just got me. We've come now to our object spotlight section and Melissa is up with this week's object. So this week I have chosen to talk about the Licking Stones at Carlisle Castle, which isn't strictly an object, but it is a thing that I thought would be worth mentioning. What are Licking Stones, you might be wondering? Let me tell you. So Carlisle Castle is over 900 years old and I went here on a school trip when I was younger. And after the defeat of the Jacobite uprising in 1746, a lot of prisoners were held in Carlisle Castle by the government. And during the summer of that year, around 90 prisoners were kept in the dungeons of the castle awaiting trial. And I remember going into those dungeons on the school trip. I think I was in primary school at this time. And I remember being told about the licking stones. So you go into the dungeon and it's very small, very dark. So you can imagine 90 people being in there would be very uncomfortable and very grim for those people. And there's very little water in the dungeon. But as you can tell when you stand in there now, the walls are actually still quite damp. And there are lots of natural grooves and dips in the stone where water would collect and for sustenance prisoners were forced to lick the damp walls to stay alive hence the term licking stones so the poor prisoners licked the stones to stay alive and you can actually see where the tongues have worn the stone down into these smooth pillars and and yeah these kind of grooves in the wall it's it's really bizarre to look at. And I remember when my class went in there, you know, we were all young kids being told about this and we were all like, ooh, gross. Ew. But actually now as a adult thinking about that, you really think, goodness, what an awful, awful place to have human beings crammed together and what an awful thing to have to do to stay alive. So it's a really grim reminder of a dark time in history of Carlisle Castle. So those are the licking stones of Carlisle Castle and we would like to add them into our Things in Jars Cabinet of Curiosity. That brings us to the end of part one of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be coming next week. But in the meantime, please do follow us on our social media. We are Things in Jars Podcast on Instagram and Things in Jars Pod on Twitter. I'm Melissa. And I'm Poppy. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye.